there is uh, a reason, of course, that we saved introducing Jesus into our story for today. And if you remember, we're going through this series, and it is called Epic. Uh, and it's uh, very simply this, Exploring Essential Theology as revealed in the greatest story ever told. And that story is the story of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, there is a story that unfolds. And it is the greatest story ever told. Uh, But yet, in order to to tell this story properly, we see how God unfolds things. And we, of course, started in in this series by looking at the Bible, because that's where we get the story from, right? And so that's how we started. And then we started to introduce some characters, and I say characters with the air quotes, you know, because we get what we're talking about. These uh, are, are, um, we're talking about God and the angels and Jesus and us, all these important characters in our story. Because we, now that we need to see how this flows together. Because why is it important to us? Because we know that we're also part of the story. And uh, so anyway, we started with the Bible. And then, of course, we started to introduce uh, those that we meet in the story of Scripture. And, of course, first and foremost, we started with God, the Father, and looked at his attributes. And then, of course, it would have been, in, in sequence, of course, it would have been Jesus the Son. But we saved him for today. Because it is Christmas, and in a couple of days we get to, to celebrate that like we love to do. And so today we're going to talk all about Jesus. But of course we were introduced to the Holy Spirit and the role that he plays in the life of the believer. And, and then uh, we talked about angels and demons. We talked about Satan, our enemy, and he will come up in our story again today. We looked at what the drama was that started to unfold, and that was called sin. But then the following week after that we looked at, well, well how is it that we are rescued from this drama? How does it start to get rectified? And so we saw that it was through um, salvation, soteriology, right? And then, of course, uh, we also looked at in there our humanity. And we looked at um, anthropology, like meaning the study of us, of humans, and what part do we play. And so we've seen a lot, and a lot has unfolded. But of course, today, we are looking at the very person and work of Jesus Christ, And now how novel of an idea is that, that the church would talk about Jesus, right? That good? Because that's what we're going to do today. And because that is the Christmas story, and that is where we find ourselves in our sermon series as the Bible story unfolds, right? And so we knew that there was drama that entered into our story, and we called that sin, and we looked at Adam and Eve, and we looked at the the rebellion that started with Satan and, uh, and then his demons and We see that Jesus brought us salvation. We talked all about how a person receives that gift of salvation. And then, of course, today we're looking at the person, the provision that God gave in order to bring us salvation. And so, like I've said with every other topic, there, of course, have been volumes and volumes written uh, over the course of church history about all of these theological topics. And so all we do on a Sunday morning is we look at, we sort of highlight uh, some of the things so that we can get an understanding, a, a grasp of what it means, why these theological issues are important to us. And then what we do is we say, look, it is important that, yeah, you take notes, you take notes in your notebook so that you can go home and dig deeper. Because there's, there's so much more to learning about God than just a little bit of time on a Sunday morning. Am I right? And so therefore, these Sunday mornings are really designed and meant to be encouraging, to be um, uh, thoughtful, to be informational, you know, but also challenging as well. And part of that challenge is to go back to the Bible 
and and dig deeper into these issues. And so today, of course, can we fit a, a whole discussion, uh, an exhaustive discussion on the person and work of Jesus into our time remaining? No, and some of you think, well, Pastor will try his hardest, and he'll talk real fast and give us a lot of scriptures, but we cannot. So what would our focus be today then? What is uh, an essential doctrine of the, the Christian faith that has to do with Jesus Christ? And what would make sense to talk today? And that would be the birth of Jesus, what we call the incarnation. We'll look at that. And very simply, what is our question uh, today, it is, why was Jesus born? Did you ever think about that? We celebrate the birth of Jesus in many ways, and, and we hear the stories of, of, um, that, that we love, especially from Luke and, and the, the whole uh, Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, and then Joseph and Mary, and no room in the inn, and, and, and all of that. And it's so beautiful because it's there in Scripture, and it reminds us of what was taking place. But did you ever stop and think about why was Jesus born, really, and Why is it important to us that he was born? Or even better, why did God take on human form? Did you ever think about that? What was the reason for it? Why? Why do we celebrate Christmas? You would say to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Yes, but why was he born? Why is that important? You know, one of the words that we we hear a lot, um, we talk about a lot this time of year, is the nativity. A lot of people have nativity scenes, maybe on the lawn, on their lawn, or on their mantle. And, and oftentimes churches and, and, and maybe Christian schools, they have sort of a, a nativity play. You know, you get the little kids to, to kind of act out, and Mary and Joseph, and they go around. And, and there was a story once of, uh, of um, these kids that were doing it uh, in, a, in a little school, and they were putting it on, and the little kids that were playing the part of Mary and Joseph would go around on the stage to each door and asking, is there any room, any room? And, of course, there was no room for them anywhere, right? And so during that, there was one little kid who was in the audience, and he just yelled out. He said, why didn't you make a reservation? <laughs> right? It kind of like, hey, that makes sense, right? But it's interesting, you know, um, uh, we, look at the, um, we look at the nativity. We say, why is it so important that we remember and we celebrate the birth of Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at today. Why is it so important to us? It's like we know, right, as believers, we know it's important, but you ever stop and think about why and what are all the implications of that? You know, there was a, um, a grandmother who was teaching her young uh, granddaughter, she's about eight or nine, just about, um, about the nativity and about the birth of Jesus and telling her the whole Christmas story and and her granddaughter had been really, doing a really good job of learning. And, and the grandma was really impressed by her granddaughter's, you know, sort of understanding of knowledge and especially of the Bible knowledge and of the Christmas story. And, and so she said, you know, have you read and, and understand about the virgin birth and what that means? And her granddaughter said, yes. Yeah. But I, grandma, I have one question. And grandma said, what's that? She said, well, well which um, virgin are we talking about? Are we talking about Mary or the King James virgin? So... There's another one. Every once in a while, I pull out on my shelf that book about corny pastor jokes. Every once in a while. Every once in a while. And um, so there you go. But anyway, it kind of sets the stage, right? So if we're going to talk about the incarnation, we'll get into it now. There's going to be a lot of scripture. So make sure you take some notes and write down the references. But um, what's important about the incarnation? Well, why is it important that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin? 
what do we mean when we say things like the hypostatic union? Did you ever hear about that? We won't get too technical today, but these are words, again, as we look at essential theology, these are words that you might read or hear about in sort of in plain terms why it's important, okay? Um, but again, we start with this idea of the incarnation. It's sort of a big fancy word, and, and it basically means that God took on humanity, he took on flesh. So incarnation, if you know in there, there is that root word of, of carne, or which means flesh, Right? And so the idea is that God, who we know is spirit, because the word says God is spirit, took on human flesh. Now that seems really weird, doesn't it? I mean, if you just stop and think, like, that seems like a weird thing to happen in history. But it did, and it is extremely and highly significant. And we might have a sense of, yes, we understand that, but why in particular? And then there's this thing called um, the hypostatic union, which we'll look at, which simply means that we say and we believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man at the same time. 100% deity and 100% human at the same time. That they do not mix or in the humanity does not, the humanity does not taint his deity, but in one person and the only person who ever lived on this earth, that it was so, that he was always God and never not God. And he was always from his birth, he was always human, never not human. And why is it important? But see, that goes to the real core of our question today. Why did God have to become human? And so we're going to look at that. And so first I want to start with this. This is from John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. And I mentioned to you, uh, maybe it was a week or two ago, that um, if you have somebody that you've been sharing your faith with and talking about Jesus, the Gospel of John is a perfect place to start. Because John, the writer of uh, the Gospel of John, what he does is he really focuses on these things, about why was Jesus born, um, and he talks about Jesus as God, the deity, and he really makes it so plain and clear that Jesus is the only way to be reconnected to God. And we've seen that in our story unfold, right? That, that what happens is, because of sin, because of that drama unfolded, we as humans are separated from our Creator. See, He's our Creator, we are the creation, we're separated from Him, because He is holy and perfect, right? And we are not, because of sin, so we're separated. So, of course, then the whole drama unfolds is, how are we then reconnected? And so God, in ages past, promised that there would be a Redeemer. All the way back in Genesis, when sin entered in, God right away said, there will one day be a Redeemer. Remember that? He talked about what he would do to Satan. And and so there was this promise. And in the birth of Jesus, that promise was kept. It's a great way to think about it. God is the ultimate promise keeper. We're going to look at that uh, on Tuesday night and Christmas Eve because the theme is hope is born. And see, God promised that there would be hope once again, meaning that there always is this hope. But he said, you know what? I will bring that Messiah that I promised so long ago. He will come. Just wait. Remember when we looked at Habakkuk? Remember? And there was this great verse in chapter one where it says, you know, if you... God basically says to Habakkuk, like, if you feel like I'm taking too long to answer your prayer, what does God say? Wait a little bit longer. And so the people of God, the, the, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, they, they had been waiting for generations and generations for God to make good on the promise. And in the birth of Jesus Christ that night over 2,000 years ago, God made good on his promise. And that's what he did. 
he promised that there would come a Savior. But why did he have to be born? So look at John chapter 1. It'll be up here on the screen. It's, it's the first uh, 14 verses of John 1. We don't always read this during Christmas, but it's highly um, appropriate and significant. So look at this. It says in John 1, it's the opening of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Then we start to get more into the Christmas story. He came to his own And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then here's verse 14. And the word, who we now know as Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See how those 13 verses lead right up to verse 14? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word being Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is God, so He is Spirit. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. The Word that that really means to dwell among us, is tabernacle. Remember back in the Old Testament where the presence of God dwelt when the people of Israel, before they had the temple, and they were traveling around in the desert, and they traveled, right, before they built the temple, they had a tabernacle, and it was mobile, and they would move it around. That was where God dwelt. That was the presence of God. And so Jesus came to tabernacle with us to dwell among men as one of our own. See? And so John, the gospel writer, says that the word, Jesus, became flesh and he dwelt among us. And he even says, and we have seen his glory. Do you remember what happened to people in the Old Testament when they saw God's glory? They would die. You could not, you could not look into the face of God. But yet, what is he saying? He's saying, we got to see God. We got to see him. So there's a great reason for the birth and so that God could reveal his glory that we could then look upon it. So blessed are all those people that live then, but the Bible also says even more blessed are we who do not see but yet believe. Because one day we will see him face to face, amen? Isn't that beautiful? In everything we talk about, even in the history, we look forward to that blessed hope and that beautiful future. And so uh, at that moment of his birth, humanity was added to the deity And he was always truly God and truly human, 100% of each. But why did he have to be born? So here's the text that we want to just look at today, sort of our outline. We'll go through it briefly. But it is from Hebrews. Have you ever read 
Hebrews during Christmas time? No, but we really should. And here's why. Hebrews chapter 2, if you're going to follow along in your Bible. Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 18. And you'll see it unfold. Uh, why this is such a key passage on the birth of Jesus, and more importantly, why God had to become human, why he had to take on flesh the incarnation. Does that make sense? So we've looked at incarnation, which simply means take on flesh, right? There is, of course, the virgin birth. That comes in, in here too. Why did he have to be born of a virgin? And then also there is this idea of what we call, in theological terms, the hypostatic union. It's a very fancy way of saying that, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Truly each of each and, and, and never one tainting the other. Right? And he was always that. And so therefore that's significant because Jesus in his earthly life, he never stopped being God, although he was human. And there's very personal application to that. And you'll see that towards the end of our, our passage today. So I'm going to read this and then we're just going to unpack a couple of verses at a time and see why this passage really brings um, some revelation and clarification to why God had to become human. All right. Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. A little bit of background, then I'll read it. Uh, this book, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, there is no author listed. A lot of scholars have said it's Paul. We don't know for sure. Um, but uh, we're pretty sure that the people that he was writing it to uh, were believers. And I would say that that's pretty clear, actually, that they were Christians, but of Jewish background. So he called them, called the book Hebrews, whoever wrote it. But here's why it's important for us today, because so much of Hebrews is focused on Jesus' connection in his humanity to humanity, to people, and then also to believers. So the book of Hebrews talks a lot about uh, this idea of Jesus now being a high priest. We'll look at that in heaven, like uh, you know, after the, the order of, of, of Melchizedek and the other uh, priests in that uh, priests were representatives of God. And we see Hebrews sort of talks a lot about um, the connection of Jesus in his uh, humanity to us. It's a very personal, uh, sort of intimate letter uh, that is, is, is highly significant and important to us. And so we don't ever want to neglect that. And so I think it's a good opportunity to read sort of uh, this part from Hebrews 2 and let it unfold to us about why God had to become human. So here it is, Hebrews 2, 5 to 18, and then we'll unpack it little by little. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and he quotes from the Old Testament, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. We'll unpack that, but he's talking about Jesus. Verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, 
should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's talking about Jesus in us. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, talking about Jesus and us, in every aspect. See, he was talking about the birth. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And you'll see as we get closer to the last verses, as we unpack that, Man, what a great application for us. What Jesus did for us. We know what he did on the cross. We remember it all the time. And it is what we we focus on, his death and his resurrection. Because that is how we, uh, uh, that is how salvation is offered to us. We receive it by that free gift of, uh, of faith. But here's the thing. The idea is this. In order to get to the cross, to die on the cross... For his body and blood to be given to us, he had to be born, right? I mean, it's obvious, but we need to state that obvious sometimes, that Jesus needed to be born. God had to come in the flesh. So here's sort of our outline for today. We're going to look at, um, it as this passage unfolds, right, why God had to come in flesh. So we're going to look at, he had to do it to restore God's original purpose for man, uh, to taste death for every man, this passage says. To bring many to glory, to break Satan's rule over humanity, to remove the fear of death, and, and even on and on. And so let's look at that now together. Uh, this is actually, this outline is adapted from J. Dwight Pentecost. He's a great Bible teacher and author uh, from many years ago. And he kind of put this together, and I think it just perfectly sort of outlines this passage of Scripture. And so number one, it says this. Um, why was why was Jesus born? To restore God's original purpose for man. This is verses 5 to 9. So I, went, I won't re-re- uh, reread the whole thing, but in this passage, verses 5 to 9, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that God had to take on flesh so he could restore God's original purpose for man. So that's why he quotes Psalm 8. Okay, so that psalm in there where it says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Maybe you've read that before. That's from Psalm 8. He talks about Jesus for a little while being made a little lower than the angels because that's when he took on flesh and became a human, see? And so he quotes Psalm 8 and he goes on to talk about how God had an original plan for human beings. Now, we kind of looked at this when we talked about anthropology, the study of us, right, of humans. Why did God create us? We know ultimately to bring him worship, 
But why did he put Adam and Eve on earth? Do you remember what it says way back in Genesis 1? And what was even the reason? It was to have dominion. Remember that word? It was to have dominion over the earth. Over the earth. And he said, let us create man in our image, right? And, and we'll, give him, we'll give them, man and woman, Adam and Eve first, dominion over the earth. Meaning that they would rule. What does dominion mean? That they would sort of govern, take care of, manage, rule over the earth. So that was why God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and created man and woman. He said, let us create man in our image, right, humans, so that they could then have dominion over this earth. And that was the original intent and plan and purpose for God creating humans, But then, of course, we looked at the drama that unfolded very quickly after. It didn't take long, did it? That one of God's most beautiful creations, Satan, he fell. And he rebelled. And so he comes in the form of a serpent, part of God's creation, created order. And he comes and he deceives humanity, Adam and Eve. And he leads them astray and gets them to believe that maybe they could be God. And he gets them to rebel. He tempts them and they give in to that temptation. And at that point... Sin enters into the story. And so what happens? Satan, the enemy of God, usurps the authority from Adam and Eve that God gave to them. God said, Adam and Eve and all of your descendants, you should have dominion over the earth. And Satan said, no, it's going to be my dominion. And he did it by tempting them and they fell. And so since that day, the Bible has told us that Satan, and we looked at him in one of our messages is called the God of this age, or the ruler of this age, the, the prince of the air. It says that he can become like an angel of light because he is a great deceiver. Remember all that? And so we need to remember we have that enemy. God has an enemy, and Satan has dominion over this earth. God is always, always universally sovereign. He is never out of control. He has allowed this to happen. But see, Satan has taken that place of having dominion over this earth. That's what we say when we, we mean when we say the world. He took it away from Adam and Eve. So in order for God to bring all things back to perfection, as they were in the garden with Adam and Eve, he promised there would be a redeemer who would come and restore all things. And he even tells us how all things are going to end. And the final message in our series, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at future. How is it all going to play out and end? But see, God already promised that. So Jesus was born because God had to take on flesh so he could enter humanity and have final dominion over this physical world like it was set up to be. See, Adam and Eve were supposed to be representatives. God's representatives on earth to have dominion. And they failed at that. And God promised, I will send one to do that. Did you ever read in the Bible where Jesus is called the last Adam? So you had the first Adam, and then he failed at that, and so God promised he would send Jesus. He is called the last Adam, the final Adam. Because he will come to do, we believe that to be in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign on earth, that Jesus will fulfill God's original plan. See how it all comes back to fruition? It's beautiful when you see a a story start to come together like that, right? And so the birth of Jesus is an integral part of that story. Because God had to enter humanity and take on flesh, first of all, to restore God's original purpose for man and woman. And that was to govern and rule over the earth on behalf of God. That's what a governor does, right? You rule on behalf of somebody. Supposed to at least, I guess. 
And so that was his plan for humans. And so that was where we see that story. So what is lost in, in the Garden of Eden is going to be restored in an earthly sense, not just a spiritual sense, an actual earthly kingdom where Jesus will rule. See why that makes sense? It's also because it's what the Bible teaches. So that's why Jesus had to be born. And number two, how about this? Uh, it says that in verse the second half of verse 9, that he took on flesh... To taste death for every man, it says it in the second half of verse 9, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It's talking about Jesus. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That is you and me. So how do we sum that up? Very simply, we say this. Jesus was born to die. We don't like to say it or even think of it. But that's the theological truth. Why was Jesus born? So he could die a physical death. Remember we say way back in Genesis when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and he replaced their fig leaves that they tried to cover their sin themselves. They couldn't do it themselves. That sound familiar? God had to do it for them. So he gave them animal skins. And so the blood of an animal was shed. And that represents what would happen one day in the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood was shed to cover the sin of humanity so that we could be reconnected to God. And so it says that, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was born to taste death for every man. Right? Death came into the world through Adam and Eve. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. He became human so he could die a physical death. And we know he did on that cross of Calvary. A spirit cannot die. I mean, God is spirit. A spirit cannot die, but flesh can die. And so God took on flesh in the form of Jesus. Excuse me. At that moment, humanity was added to deity. We then got that hypostatic union where he was fully God and fully human. Why was he born of a virgin? Very simply, again, that could be a whole sermon series itself. Why is it important? To really circumvent the inheritance of sinful nature. Yes, he was born of a woman. But scripture after scripture in the New Testament tells us that it was by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, it says. And so why is that so significant? Because how is the sin passed down generation after generation? Why are we all born in that sinful nature that we talked about a few weeks ago? Because we are born into humanity of a father and a mother, right? Biological father and mother. But Jesus, the only one in history, was born of the woman, of Mary, but not of a human father, but of a heavenly father in order to circumnavigate, to sort of circumvent the passing down of sin generation to generation because Jesus was the only one who ever lived a human life on earth and never sinned. He was tempted. We're going to get to that. He felt what we felt, sorrow, pain, difficulty. He worked. He was a carpenter. But he never sinned. Therefore, he was the only one who could pay the penalty for our sin. Because he was the only one who was ever perfect. And God was telling us from long ago that only God himself could provide the provision for our penalty. Because the penalty was death. The wages of sin of death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So, that's the second thing. To taste death for every man. How about in verses 10 to 13? 
It says that he came in the flesh to bring many to glory, which means now we're getting into our connection with him to bring many to glory. I mean, those who would believe and receive that gift of salvation by faith, right? Salvation given to us by God's grace. We receive it by faith and faith alone. So that then he could bring many, meaning the believers, those who would believe to glory. It says in verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and we're talking about Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's God the Father making the founder of salvation, Jesus, perfect through his suffering. So we start to see the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage his readers and say, you might be suffering for a time, but you're connected with Jesus because of the suffering. So God had to take on flesh so that he could suffer in humanity. Do you suffer? Do you know what suffering is like? Yes, you do. I'm telling you that you do. You know what suffering is like. We all know what suffering is like. We all do suffer. And Jesus never promised that life in him would be perfect and without suffering. In fact, sometimes, and Jesus even said it, that sometimes it's going to get worse. But yet we know the joy that we can have that surpasses our circumstances. That's a joy that we sing and talk about at Christmas time, right? Joy to the world, for the Lord has come. We can have joy in Christ no matter what's going on in our human fleshly world and our fleshly life. So, Jesus came to earth to bring many to glory. Meaning that our inheritance, our future, is one of glory. But it says in here, if you were to read the original language right in the Greek, what it's basically saying is that this has already happened. We have not yet obtained or enjoying the glorification. That's when we get our glorified bodies that we're all looking forward to. That's happening in the future. But the writer of Hebrews is saying it as if it's already happened. It says in Romans 8 as well. The same type of thing that it's like it's such a done deal that they can write it like it's already happened. See, in salvation, sort of what we call the three tenses or three tenses of salvation, that there is justification, we're set right before God. And that happens once and for all, become believers. There is sanctification, that is our lifelong journey with Jesus, becoming more like him, becoming holy, which we attain when he returns. Then there is glorification, justification, sanctification, and in the future, the glorification. That's what the Red of Hebrews means, that Jesus had to be born to bring many brothers and sisters also in the flesh to glory. Don't we look forward to what we call the rapture when Jesus will return for his church and bring us into glory? Look forward to that. But Jesus had to be born into this world for all of that to be able to unfold. So it says in these verses... It says, he is not ashamed to call them brothers, meaning that Jesus looks at us and calls us brothers and sisters. He created the church. He said he's building the church. We are his spiritual family. The believers are. Remember what Jesus said at the cross? He said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? And he meant us as believers. The spiritual family. Romans 8 talks about Jesus being the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. See, did you know as a believer that you're part of a spiritual family? And Jesus is the head of that family. I mean, we all have family issues on earth, don't we? we yes, we, thank you. 
And maybe it gets intensified this time of year around the Thanksgiving table or around Christmas and you see some of those relatives. Yeah, that crazy uncle's coming back, you know. But maybe there's even deeper, uh, deeper issues that you have with people, things that haven't been relationships that haven't been restored yet. Maybe this will be the year for that. Are you praying for that? But see, we are part of a perfect spiritual family in that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. In Christ. What a beautiful picture. 2 Corinthians four seventeen to 18 It says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We say amen to that? So we suffer... Because Jesus suffered, but he had to be born in the flesh in order to suffer in the flesh like we do. So we are connected to him. That is the picture of baptism, that we are buried, right, in Christ. We are dead in Christ and raised to life in Christ because he physically died and physically rose again. So we talked about why is that important, that we include that in our church statement of faith. That he physically died and physically rose back to life. Not just mysteriously, spiritually, but his actual body physically arose. It's all because he was born in the flesh and all this had to happen in the flesh. See? Ephesians 2, 6. And raised us up, meaning us as believers, the church. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, we're not yet in heaven But when he returns for his church and we are gathered with all of the the, the deceased saints, it says that we are going to be seated with Christ. We get to be seated with him and then reign with him in that earthly millennial kingdom. Isn't that beautiful? But all that is a promise, a hope of the future, because Jesus was born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. Had to happen for God to keep that promise. We continue on verse 14. Jesus was born... God became uh, human to break Satan's rule over humanity. Kind of goes back to what we're saying about God's original plan. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, meaning Jesus. Meaning the writer is saying because we're flesh and blood, right? Because we're flesh and blood, we we have these, um, we're children of that. It says, so Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, his death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus had to be born in the flesh so he could die in the flesh on the cross and defeat Satan. Remember, way back in Genesis, we meet the enemy of God. We meet the enemy. We see that that Satan took control or authority or dominion over this world that God had given to Adam and Eve. And so God said, one day we'll get it back and I'm going to send the Redeemer. And that is Jesus. And so in order to die on the cross, to, to, to break Satan's rule over humanity, he had to be born in the flesh. Kind of like what we said back in number two. So through his death, he defeats Satan on the cross. See, Satan was convicted but his penalty is still to come. We see at the end of all things, we'll see that in a couple of weeks, Satan is finally cast into the lake of fire. His judgment is coming. But the penalty has already been given. So, he was born to take away Satan's power of death. He couldn't be resurrected to life to defeat death if he didn't first die, and he couldn't die if he didn't become human. See that? 
And then the rest of these kind of flow into that. So why else? Verse 15, to remove the fear of death. So not only the power of death, but how about the fear of death? What a beautiful thing for us to know. How that should change our life. Verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Meaning without Jesus, there is always that fear of physical death. As believers, as hard as it might be, church, as believers, we should not fear physical death. Now, in our humanity, because we're not yet perfect, of course we fear, because there is still that sense of the unknown. We understand it for people that are not yet believers in Jesus. Of course they're going to fear. But yet, we fear. Why? Because it's unknown. We've never been there. And we fear because we don't want to leave our loved ones behind. But in Jesus, because there is that promise and because there is hope, We should not fear death because God is in control of it. And through Jesus Christ, he has defeated the power of Satan over death. He declared that victory, see? But that victory is for us so we don't have to fear of anything in this world, especially of our physical death. Remember what Paul said? To live is Christ, but what is death? To die is gain. Paul was basically saying, okay, Jesus, I'll stay on earth and I'll I'll be your witness and I'll preach for you and I'll tell other people about you. I'd much rather be with you. So if you want me to die, it's okay with me. Because that's truly gain. I mean, to live, that's Christ. So I'm going to live for you, but if you can just take me from this forsaken world, I'd much rather be with you now, Jesus. So there you go. So God had to take on human flesh in the form of Jesus Christ, to break Satan's rule over humanity. Also, to remove that fear of death. Because now we know what happens after death. Now we know. The fear is not knowing. But the Bible makes it so clear what's going to happen, we should know. That brings us hope. Again, that is our theme for Christmas Eve. That hope was born that night. It's a beautiful personal application. A couple more. Why else was he born? To become our merciful high priest, verse 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Remember, it's Jesus being like us, we're his brothers, so that he might become, look, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So Jesus is now... Fulfilling that calling of being our great high priest. See, yes, he is king, but he is our coming king. When he comes back to earth after the rapture, the tribulation, when he comes back to earth to set up his earthly kingdom, to have dominion like Adam and Eve should have, he will come back as king to judge sin and then to rule as a righteous and merciful king on earth. But what is his role right now? As priest. He is our great high priest in heaven. A priest is a representative. There were priests on earth in the Old Testament. Remember that? And what was their job? Was to actually bring the worship of God on behalf of the people. And they would also offer the sacrifices. Remember what the high priest would do? The earthly high priest once a year would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. And he would bring the offering, the sacrifice, 
That would then appease God. The law, obviously God designed it not to be perfect, but to point God, uh, people back to him. But they would, have to, they would have to go in once a year, and that would sort of uh, cover them for a year. And then he would have to go back in year after year after year. And then God said, I'm sending Jesus, their promised Messiah, to do it once and for all. So that's why he's called our great high priest, because he is God's representative on earth. He is now in heaven, and he will come back. So why is it important that he is our great high priest as a priest, as a representative? He is our advocate, our representative to God the Father. When Satan tries to accuse us and tries to uh, defame us before God the Father, Jesus steps in, and he takes our place, and he is our advocate. He is our great high priest. But isn't it beautiful that he is a great high priest that knows what it's like to suffer? That's why he had to be born in the flesh. How about later on in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16? You know these verses. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He's saying, don't give up. Have that hope. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he never sinned. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you in a time of need right now? The writer of Hebrews says, praise God, you have Jesus on your side. You have a great high priest who knows what it's like to go through what you're going through. He's saying, don't feel like you're the only one on earth who's going through what you're going through. And Jesus says, I'm right there with you. And Jesus suffered. He was tempted. He knew what it was like to mourn the death of a loved one. He worked. He toiled. He had to sweat. He bled. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He said he had no place to lay his head. Do you remember that about Jesus? It's because, therefore, we say he is our great high priest and the the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage the readers in saying, look, we can go. Church, this is for us right now. We can go before the throne of God. He's called the throne of grace. And tell him what's going on in our life and say, Jesus, I know you know what it's like to go through this. Can you please help me? Can you please be merciful and kind and compassionate and show me your favor? We can do that, the writer of Hebrews says, with confidence. Not like, God, you know, maybe you can do it. No, we go with confidence boldly before the throne of grace because he is our high priest. So therefore, he had to be born of the flesh so he could then um, suffer and experience all that we experience. Two last ones. Verse uh, 17, the second half of 17, he did it to make a complete purification of sin, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. A very simple statement. We talked about that word. That word, propitiation, is a fancy theological term in uh, what Christ did on the cross. Right? It simply means that the wrath of God against sin was satisfied. The wrath of God was satisfied Because Jesus paid the price. It appeased God. See, when there's disobedience, there has to be consequences. Am I right, parents, with your kids? So we are God's children, and we have disobeyed. We are sinful before him. 
But there's got to be a penalty. So yes, God forgives us, parents. We can show grace to our kids and we can forgive them. But there had to be a price that was paid. And God is angry about sin. God hates sin, the Bible says. So there is wrath and judgment against sin. Propitiation means that Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, satisfied God's wrath. You know why it's important to us? Because God, listen, God no longer judge you if you are a believer in Christ. If you are a believer, it says God doesn't judge you now. You know what God does? He loves you. That's really, in a sense, all God can do for you is to love you. Because the judgment, the wrath, was paid for and covered and satisfied in Jesus. So therefore, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear God. We don't have to fear all the circumstances in life because Jesus knew what it was like. It says we have a great high priest who knows what it was like to go through what we were going through. And he took upon himself our sin so that he could then satisfy the wrath of a righteous, perfect, and holy God. Does that make sense? He had to do that. But what does that mean? It's so beautiful for us. That God is not judging us. When God returns to the earth, first of all, church, I believe we won't be here. But our salvation is secure. We don't have to fear God's judgment. When we sin, we disappoint Him. We talked about that. And there's got to be consequences. We break fellowship with God when believers sin. But that ultimate penalty has already been paid. See, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin in our lives. We have the Holy Spirit, right? And we will then be glorified and finally take possession of all the rest of what that means to be saved in the glorification. The final one, in verse 18, it's very similar to what we look at with him being a great high priest. It finally says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted were you ever tempted to sin uh i think you probably we don't want to do it but every single person should raise their hand right you don't have to but you know what i'm saying we have all been tempted it's part of living this human life jesus was tempted he was tempted but yet he never sinned because he was perfect but he was tempted satan tempted him probably worse than he's tempted any human being ever But because he was tempted, he knows what it's like to be tempted. So when you are tempted to sin, brothers and sisters, know that Jesus knows what it's like. Go to him. Ask for that help. Know that he has given you the power through the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and disobedience. We can't do it on our own. But God has done it for us, and he will give us the power and ability to say no. The closer we stick with him and read the truth of God's word and stay connected with him in prayer the easier we will be able to identify sin in our lives and the easier it will be to say no to that sin and to walk away. We'll never do it perfectly until he returns, but we can do that because we have that power because of what Christ has done. And so, church, can we not see how crucial it was that Jesus was born? That Jesus was born. And the angels proclaimed it, told the shepherds. The wise men sought him to worship him. 
That is what we do as believers. We worship him. If you're here this morning and you are still seeking, like the wise men were seeking him, if you're still seeking Jesus, still trying to figure out who this Jesus is, well, let me tell you, every person is going to have to at some point do something with Jesus because Jesus claimed to be God. He wasn't just some good, like, holy man or some good teacher. He was a man who lived on this earth. He was born, saw that today, born with a purpose, but he lived and he claimed to be God. He claimed that he would die, which he did, and that he would come back to life physically, which he also did. Has anybody else ever claimed to be God and die to come back to life? So Jesus really leaves us no other option than to either think that he was crazy and so he's not even just some good teacher or he truly is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God that John 3.16 talks about. And that's what the Bible teaches. That's what we believe here at this church. And So we say this, how do we get reconciled to that holy, perfect God if we're sinners? If we are wretched sinners in His sight because of that sin nature, we get connected to God only through Jesus. It says that if we believe, we will be saved. There were many that asked in Scripture, how do I get saved? And the answer over and over again was, believe. Believe that Jesus, very simple church, believe that Jesus is who He says He is, This is God. And he did what he said he was going to do, which was die and rise again. And he did it to secure salvation for us. But how do we then receive that? Does it happen automatically? It says very simply that we receive it by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it so clear. That is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. It's not of our own works, like Adam and Eve tried to do in covering their sin. So that no one can boast, because Jesus did it all. But that's the only way to be reconnected to our God. And so you simply believe. If you have not yet believed, let that be right now. Let it be that opportunity that you have right now to believe. And you do it between you and God. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to say a, a special magical prayer between you and God you say yes I believe who you say you are and I believe that you did what you said you were going to do and I believe it for my salvation not just theoretically but I believe it for me it says then you will be saved then you can have that hope that Jesus offers a hope that the world can never offer this hope was born that night It was a promise that was made in Jesus, the fulfillment of that promise. I do trust and hope that you believe that. So we're going to end our time with one last song to worship Jesus, our Messiah. Consider all that the Bible was telling you today. And what is your relationship to the Lord Jesus, the one who was born, born to die for us?